1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or reviler, reveler, reveler, drunken or swindler, do not eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Got my work cut out for me today. Friends, if we were to summarize the message here, it would be the title of the sermon. Love is intolerant. True love is intolerant. Because, friends, love is intolerant of anything that would harm the beloved. Love is intolerant of anything that would harm the beloved. For example, I love my family. And as such, I am intolerant of anything that would harm them. My children know that we do not tolerate illegal drugs in our household. And there are other behaviors or activities that we don't tolerate in my household. Why? Because I love my family. And those things would ultimately harm them. And anything that would harm them, I am intolerant of because I love them. I mean, in the same way, if my wife went to the doctor and the doctor said that she had colon cancer, but just a little bit, do you think I'm going to tolerate just a little bit of cancer in her body? No, I love her. I love her too much to tolerate even a little bit of cancer being in her body. Love does not tolerate that which would grow and spread and ultimately be harmful to the beloved. Friends, love is intolerant. In fact, if I were to tolerate my children going down the destructive path of illegal drug use and addiction, if I was to tolerate cancer remaining in my wife's body, then you might assume that I don't love or care about them. Because true love 
is intolerant of anything that would bring harm to the beloved. That's the message in today's passage in 1 Corinthians 5. Love is intolerant. In verses 1 and 2, Paul states with his characteristic bluntness the problem, and also he gives the solution, and really the rest of the chapter is detailed. So chapter verses 1 and 2, the problem and the solution. It is actually reported there's sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who done, has done this be removed from among you. Now, in that time, if a man's wife died, it was expected that he was going to remarry. And often, he might remarry a much younger woman. That was not at all uncommon. And in some situations, you might end up remarrying someone who was around the same age as your oldest son. Now, we don't know that that was the exact situation here. All that we know is that some kind of incestuous sexual relationship was happening between a man and his stepmother. And everyone seems to know about it. Now, friends, we've got to remember that the, the people of Corinth, the people of Corinth were no prudes. Sexual promiscuity was so widespread in Corinth that the name Corinthian was associated with sexual promiscuity. However, even in this pagan culture where sexually anything goes, this kind of dishonoring of your father and dishonoring of your father's wedding bed would have been considered, even by the Corinthians, to be shameful. And Paul was clearly bothered more by the reaction of the church than even by the event itself. Paul was bothered, make no mistake. He was bothered by what was happening, but even more than that, he was bothered by the reaction of the church. He says, basically, the bigger problem, Corinthian church, is that you have no problem with what's happening in your church. Paul writes in verse 2, you are arrogant. You are arrogant. Again, this Greek word literally means puffed up. We saw it three times last week in chapter 4. Three times Paul talks about the problem in the Corinthian churches. You are puffed up. You are arrogant. And in fact, Paul's going to use this same word a couple of more times in this letter. He uses it, for example, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, where he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul says the danger of having knowledge is that it can puff you up. It can make you arrogant, and that's exactly what's happening in Corinth. You know, Paul, Paul's point here is that those in the Corinthian church seem to believe that they possess now some kind of, some kind of special knowledge, and, and it's puffed them up. You know, we hear this same thing today from some factions of the church and from progressive Christianity. Friends, be aware of anyone that comes along and says, you know, you just have an unenlightened understanding of Christianity. Beware of anyone that comes along and says, well, really, your understandings of historic Orthodox Christian belief, you know, you're, you're, still, you're kind of unenlightened. I've got a new knowledge. I've matured beyond that. Because we, we hear deconversion stories now, today. People who, who once walked, or claimed to have walked with Jesus and now have walked away. And they say, I once was like you. I was immature and unenlightened. But now I've gained a new knowledge that's made me wise. I've evolved. 
I've grown beyond such immature and incomplete knowledge as you have of, of sexuality or of who Jesus really is or of what the Bible really means. I no longer have the, the sexual hang-ups that those of you with less knowledge than me have. Friends, that was the problem going on in Corinth, and that's a problem that's still going on in the world and the church today. This is the very worldly wisdom that Paul has been warning the Corinthian church about through the entire introduction to this letter. And the problem was, the people in Corinth were falling for it then. And church, we need to make sure we don't fall for it today. We need to cling to our foolish, old-fashioned, historic, unchanging wisdom of God as revealed in the truth of His Word. Now, in the case of this man and his stepmother, it may be that those in Corinth thought now that they had a special knowledge that that somehow freed them entirely from moral constraints. But more likely, what was going on in Corinth is that they thought they had a better knowledge of grace. Uh, We really understand grace as opposed to you people that are objecting to this man's behavior. You know, there were some within the church who probably possessed a a puffed-up, arrogant attitude going, you people who are judging and condemning this poor man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law, you just don't understand grace the way that we do. I mean, if you all were more gracious and loving like we are, you'd understand that this man's not doing something wrong. You'd accept him for who he is. You just have an an, an immature knowledge of grace, you know, and this old-fashioned view of sexuality. But but we have knowledge now and have moved beyond those things. So we're more gracious and more loving because we're more knowledgeable. But Paul's verdict of them, and this kind of an attitude is in verse 2. You who are approving this, you're puffed up, you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? To mourn. Friends, Friends, Paul's point is love is intolerant. You who are puffed up by your knowledge, your wisdom is just foolishness. You think it's gracious to not only turn a blind eye, but even to celebrate and take pride in this man's sin? You're not contributing to his well-being. You're arrogantly participating in his destruction. That's not love. True love is intolerant of that which harms the beloved. You shouldn't be making merry Corinthians. You should be mourning. You shouldn't be rejoicing in what this man's doing. You should be repenting. You shouldn't advocate for it. You should abhor it. If you truly loved this man, if you truly loved the church, if you truly loved the Lord, you wouldn't celebrate that which brings grief and harm. You would mourn it. You wouldn't tolerate it. Because true love is intolerant. True love does not tolerate that which will bring harm to the beloved. Love demands that even a little cancer needs to be dealt with and removed completely. And that is Paul's verdict. We heard at the end of verse 2, he says, Let him who has done this be removed. Removed. Paul's message is, if he will not allow his sin to be removed, then he should be removed from among you. Now, friends, let's understand this correctly, because this is hard to hear. This doesn't mean that anyone who has sin in his or her life should be removed from the church, because in that case, you'd have to remove me. But the fact is, you wouldn't be able to remove me because you all would have been removed, too. And this would be a very empty building. 
The psalmist makes this very point in Psalm 130, verse 3. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the implied answer is none of us. Basically, if a roll call of the sinless was taken, none of us would stand. Every one of us has sin. None of us is perfect. So Paul is not saying that anyone who has sin needs to be removed. What Paul is addressing here is a case of willful and unrepentant sin. Willful and unrepentant. Friends, the gospel of grace declares that there is always grace for the vilest of sinners and the most heinous of sins. However, we have to be willing to repent. We have to be willing to let go of that sin and give it to Jesus so that he can deal with it. You know, one author compared this to letting go of our garbage. He wrote, All sin is spiritual garbage and necessarily will meet its due end, which is destruction. And only if the sinner won't let go of his garbage does he get burned with it. God offers to take the garbage off his back, to separate the sinner from his sin, so the sinner is not separated from God. Jesus is the garbage man. That's the gospel. Jesus is the divine garbage man. But friends, we must confess and repent. We must let go of our garbage that Jesus might take it. However, that's exactly what was not happening in the case of this man in Corinth. Friends, it's not loving to tolerate garbage. It's not loving to tolerate spiritual cancer to remain in this man's life. He needed to repent and have the cancer removed. He ultimately needed his sin to be taken away and destroyed, lest he be destroyed with it. Friends, the church in Corinth might have thought that they were being loving by being so tolerant of his behavior. However, they were not truly loving this man. They were allowing him to continue on a sinful and self-destructive course. And he was harming himself. He was harming his family. He was harming the church. And he was damaging the name of Jesus Christ. To be truly loving to this man, the church needed to be intolerant of his willful, unrepentant, destructive, and deadly sin. Friends, the church in Corinth thought they were offering him grace. But that wasn't gospel grace. That was cheap grace. It was cheap grace. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his brilliant book, The Cost of Discipleship, wrote that cheap grace, what is it? It's a cheap covering for sins. No contrition is required. Still less any desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. Friends, cheap grace is grace offered without repentance. It's clinging to your garbage while demanding forgiveness for it. Friends, cheap grace is keeping the cancer while demanding, declare me healthy. And do you see why God won't do that and can't do that? Because it's a lie. You can't keep the cancer in your body and go, you need to declare me healthy. That's a lie. And it's more than a lie. It's a destructive lie. In the New Testament, the word repent is the Greek word metanoia. It means literally change your mind or to turn around. Friends, we must turn around, turning from our sin and turning to Christ. We must repent and give up our garbage. We must submit to divine surgery. That the garbage, that the cancer may be removed and destroyed. Friends, the church in Corinth was baptizing this man's sin 
instead of calling him to live as one who's baptized into Jesus Christ. The church in Corinth was baptizing this man's sin instead of calling him to live as one baptized into Jesus Christ. How does one who is truly baptized into Jesus Christ live? Paul explained in Romans chapter 6. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That we might walk in newness of life. Friends, cheap grace just baptizes and blesses us in our sin. You're perfect just the way you are. But gospel grace says we were baptized into Christ so we might die to our sins and rise again to live a new life freed of those sins. Friends, Jesus loves you. And He came and calls you just as I am without one plea. But He loves you enough not to leave you where He found you. Cheap grace tries to make us feel good in our sin. Gospel grace frees us from our sin. Cheap grace wants to allow us to continue in our sins, to cling to our garbage, and demand grace for those sins. Cheap grace wants to keep the cancer while demanding, declare me healthy. The grace of the gospel leads us to repentance. It causes us to turn from our sins and turn to God that the garbage might be removed, that the cancer might be destroyed. Because love is intolerant of anything that harms the beloved. And Paul says if this man will not repent of his sin, if he insists on clinging to his garbage and he won't allow Christ to remove it, then this man must be removed from your midst. Why? There's two reasons. The first is because sin spreads. Friends, sin spreads. Like a cancer, untreated, sin spreads. Unrepentant sin left unaddressed is dangerous not only to this man, but to the church. Because others may be drawn into his deception and drawn into the deception and the behavior of this unrepentant sin. Paul warns the Corinthian church that unrepentant sin shouldn't be boasted of, but should be repented of. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now the bakers amongst us, I'm not one of them, but the bakers amongst us know that just a little bit of leaven, just a little bit of yeast, works its way through the entire batch of dough. And Paul says in the same way, unrepentant, unacknowledged sin deceives and draws other people into the deception, leads other people astray, and spreads through the entire batch. So unrepentant sin, like leaven, must be removed before it infects the entire batch. Because love is intolerant 
of that which harms the beloved and that which would ultimately spread and harm Christ's beloved. And Paul's illustration here of removing leaven is drawn from Israel's feast of feasts of Passover and of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. His illustration is drawn from the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, which is what he's referring to here. You might remember, just last year we were studying the book of Exodus. And you might recall the nine plagues they'd fallen upon Egypt, but the tenth and final plague, the Lord warned His people it was coming. And this plague was going to fall not just upon Egypt, the tenth and final plague was going to fall upon all sin and rebellion. And it was going to fall upon Israelite and Egyptian alike. And so God gave His people a means of deliverance. The Passover. The Passover which would both save them from the tenth plague and which would commemorate forever their salvation from that tenth and final plague and their ultimate deliverance from slavery in Egypt. The Lord made provision for His people, for those who had faith in His Word, to be delivered from death and slavery by the Feast of Passover. The night of the tenth plague, the people were to take a male lamb, a lamb without blemish, and the lambs were taken outside the city and they were killed at twilight. And then the blood of the lamb, they took and they put it upon the door posts and upon the lintel of the door. And the Lord says that when I bring judgment upon Egypt that night in Exodus 12:13, he says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Lord says you are covered by the blood. So judgment will pass over you and you'll be saved. And friends, the Passover feast was coupled with another feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But before we consider that, friends, consider the significance of this Passover feast. It pointed to and remembered the great deliverance of God of His people. And friends, it pointed to an even greater deliverance that one day would come. As we opened our service today with the words of John the Baptist from John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the fulfillment of the Passover. Just as we heard Paul declare in verse 7, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Friends, we can come this morning singing just as I am, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Because Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been slain to take away the sin of the world. Jesus is the lamb without blemish or sin. And during the actual Passover celebration, the very same night that the Passover lambs were slaughtered, Jesus was taken outside the city of Jerusalem and He was killed at twilight. And the blood of Jesus now covers us that we might be delivered from death and set free from sin. I come by the blood as we celebrated in song today. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed that we might be delivered from death and set free from slavery to sin. And so what does it look like to live as those set free by the Passover Lamb, Christ, who has been slaughtered, died in our place. 
Well, what it looks like is what we see in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You see, overlapping with the Feast of Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Immediately after commanding the Passover in Exodus 12, which we just read, in Exodus 12, verse 15, the Lord goes on to say, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your house. For if anyone eats what's leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. That person shall be cut off from Israel. Now, now friends, that sounds pretty harsh. Let's understand, this wasn't addressing someone who accidentally transgressed the Lord's command here. It's addressing someone who knowingly, willfully, and unrepentantly disregarded the Lord's command. Someone who treated with contempt the Lord's great salvation. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was symbolic. What did it remind Israel of? Just as the yeast was removed completely from their kitchens, Israel remembered she was removed completely from Egypt. Just as God's people were to have removed from them the Egyptian gods and the influence and the sin, so God's God's people removed the yeast from amongst them. It was reminding them of their being separated, set apart, cleansed for God's purposes. And in today's passage, as throughout the rest of the New Testament, we find that this image of leaven is regularly used as an emblem of something corrupting. You know, Paul wrote, and you heard in 1 Corinthians 5, 8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, the leaven came to symbolize sin and evil. But in, in this light, the great salvation of the Lord, in light of the great salvation and deliverance of the Lord, the people were to cleanse themselves of it, just as they were to cleanse themselves of yeast with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a dire warning. It's a dire warning saying anyone who knowingly, willfully, unrepentantly continues to hang on to the yeast, the old leaven, anyone who clings to their sin, anyone who has identified amongst them sin, leaven, evil, malice, and they refuse to be cleansed of it, refuse to repent of it, then they should be cut off from Israel. Again, Exodus 12.15 says they should be cut off from Israel 36 times in the first five books of the Bible that phrase is used. Cut off from Israel. Used most often for those who knowingly, willingly, and unrepentantly violated God's commands around worship or sexual immorality. And in today's passage in Corinthians, both those things are in view. Idolatry and sexual immorality. And the conclusion is the same. Paul's already said in verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And when Paul declares his verdict at the very end of chapter 5, the very last thing that Mary read for us this morning was a quote from Deuteronomy. Verse 13 is a quote from Deuteronomy. Purge the evil person from among you. Friends, love is intolerant of sin. Love is purges sin because sin is a cancer that spreads and destroys and kills. So love does not tolerate or celebrate the presence of spiritual cancer or garbage in the community. True love declares the gospel. It says there's a cure. The gospel is that there's a cure. There's a solution. There is a great physician, a great surgeon, and he has come to do surgery and remove that from you that you might be cleansed. But if you refuse to be cleansed, 
If you cling to that leaven of malice and evil, if you cling to your sins, and you aren't being recreated in sincerity and truth, then there's nothing left to do but to you yourself be purged. If the sin won't be purged from you, you must be purged. Church, remember the Gospel. The Gospel is that there's a cure. But what if somebody refuses the cure? What if somebody refuses the cure? What if somebody persists in denying the sickness? What if he clings to his garbage even though the garbage man has come? What if he refuses surgery although the great physician has walked into the room? Paul writes to the church in Corinth and the church in Camden. If one willingly, knowingly, unrepentantly refuses to be separated from their sin, then they must be separated from the community. Lest the sin spread, lest others be infected by this belief and behavior, lest they start to think it's safe and acceptable, lest others be drawn into the deception that has so blinded the sinner. But friends, note, this type of a separation is not just for the safety and the health of the community. You need to understand that as hard and as extreme as this seems, this is actually what is best for saving the deceived sinner. Consider what Paul says in verses 4 and 5. He says, When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, as we are here today, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So that his spirit may be saved. Church, we find that this type of action, this type of church discipline is not punitive. It's pleading. It's not condemning. It's corrective. It's not rejecting. It's restorative. This type of action is not a forever declaration. It's a serious call to repentance. Paul says, let such a thing be done so that his spirit might be saved. It's the desire for the unrepentant sinner to see the folly of their sin and to repent. It's a desperate and final cry to the sinner. Repent. It's a living parable. Your sin has cut you off from God and now your sin has cut you off from the community of God. Return to God. Return to Him. The goal is restoration. And tragically, the path to restoration might be through such a painful separation. And so Paul writes in verse 11, Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Paul says, don't just carry on with the person who's unrepentant as if nothing's wrong. I mean, the unrepentant sinner is already deceived by his sin. The separation is meant to break them out of that deception. So it's not loving to help them continue to maintain an illusion that everything is okay. Paul writes in verse 9, don't associate with such a person. Outside of this chapter, he only uses this verb one other time in the New Testament. Do not associate. He uses it again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. That's the word associate. Do not associate with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, 
but warn him as a brother. Don't regard him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. Friends, the goal is not punitive. It's restorative. Warn him that he or she may hear the warning and come to recognize the seriousness of what's going on. Don't allow her to just carry on as if nothing is wrong. Love doesn't simply tolerate that which will destroy a brother or the brother's relationship with God or their relationship with the church. And I know some of you are going, Adam, I I think it would be really unloving. It would be unloving to treat someone like this, to not even eat with them. And I hear that. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying, do you think it's loving to carry on as if nothing is wrong? To act as if everything is normal when there's actually a spiritual cancer eating your brother's soul? Is that more loving? True love is intolerant of anything that harms the beloved. And true love risks being misunderstood and dares to address and boldly and decisively speak. King David even prays that such a thing would happen to him. In Psalm 141, verse 5, King David writes, Let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. That's that's love. Love is not going to tolerate if I'm sinning and destroying myself and my relationship with God, my relationship with others. Love would rebuke me. King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Friends, true love doesn't tolerate. It doesn't remain silent as the beloved brother wanders and is deceived and is destroyed. Love acts. Love speaks. Love risks being misunderstood and seen as unloving all for the purpose of helping the beloved understand the gravity of the situation. Because love desires the sinner saved. Love desires the sinner separated from his sin, restored to Christ, and restored to the community. Love is intolerant of anything that harms the beloved. And friends, let me take a moment in closing to address the elephant in the room. Because many this morning or participating in the live stream are aware that three years ago we faced a church discipline issue here at Chestnut Street. For years, the church leadership had been walking with the person, addressing issues privately as they continued um, to repeatedly arise. But a series of events proved the final straw that necessitated us bringing it openly to you, church. Hindsight's 2020. And church family, let me tell you, to this day, as I look back on that, my greatest regret is not that we as a leadership took action. My greatest regret is that we did not take action sooner. Because our delay harmed you, it allowed leaven to work through the batch, deception to spread, complacency to to set in, and for this man and for us to become comfortable with a situation that endangered others, and it ultimately harmed us all. My greatest regret is not that church leadership spoke. I regret that we didn't speak with greater clarity and decisiveness. I regret that we left room for misinterpretation and misunderstanding, and it's resulted in some bitterness and distrust that some are still struggling with today. And I regret that I did not communicate love 
as well as on my back. There were so many prayers and so many tears. And I don't know how obvious that was to this man or to others. And I wish I had better communicated my brokenheartedness and my care to him and to you. Church family, I learned much. I grieve much. And make no mistake, I will answer to God for the decisions that I made and that I failed to make. And that weighs on me every day heavily. But today's passage tells me that love speaks. Love acts. Love risks in being misunderstood and accused of being ungracious and unloving, all for the purpose of seeing a sinner saved, separated from his sin and restored to Christ in the community. Friends, love is intolerant. It's intolerant of anything that harms the beloved or might harm the community of the beloved. And so, church, as we approach a difficult passage like this and difficult situations in the future, let us together ask the Lord to teach us what it really means for us to love. Let's pray. Father, Father, you know this was a message I didn't want to preach. Lord, I pray that you'd help us in our weakness. Help us in our imperfection. Help us in our failure. But lead us all to the very place that each one of us needs to be, which is repentance. May we live lives of repentance because of what we're about to celebrate now. Father, we're coming to the table. The table of good news. The table that says our sins can be forgiven. The table that says He has come to take and deal with our sins. The table that says the great physician has come to remove from us the spiritual cancer that was destroying our souls. Father, this is the good news. And as we gather around this table, show us. Show us if there is that to which we're clinging that we need to give up. Show us where there are cancers growing that need to be removed. And remind us again of the grace of Jesus Christ. The grace that can forgive. The grace that will save. The grace that is our only hope in life and in death. Father, lead us again to the cross of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. We come now to the table.